Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see everyone this morning. And uh, just as implied in the scripture reading, we're going to be um, looking at Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to be teaching consistently all the way through Acts chapter 7. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that a little over a year, a year ago, um, I did a series on Acts chapters 1 and 2. And I think what I'd, what I'd like to do is just from time to time come back through uh, the book of Acts through um, another section. And this is really the section that's dealing with the spread of the gospel through the city of Jerusalem up until the persecution that then causes the disciples to spread in the regions of Judea, Judea and Samaria. And I think in these chapters we really see highlighted the power of the gospel to change people and to change the culture that existed among Christians who converted. Um, so we're going to be focusing on the power of the gospel to create boldness in this chapter, um, which we've already seen in the um, scripture reading. I think boldness is a word and an idea that I think gets misunderstood uh, very easily. I think when we think of somebody who's bold, maybe we think about someone who's very abrasive and brash in the way that they communicate or behave. Um, maybe we think about somebody who's inconsiderate and rude, or we may just think like that's more of a personality type, right? Like someone has a type A personality, they're more maybe naturally inclined to be bold, but if somebody's maybe more inclined to be quiet and reserved, then maybe boldness just isn't really a part of who they are or who they can be. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that challenged, I hope, um, through this lesson. And I want to start by mentioning that the word boldness, as it's translated um, confidence, at least in the New American Standard in verse uh, 13, they observed the confidence of Peter and John. So the Greek word there is actually the same word in verse 31. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the same word. It's just being translated differently in the New American Standard, at least. The way that this word is defined biblically is to speak openly, frankly, and without ambiguity. To speak openly, frankly, and without ambiguity. And that's definitely not only what we see here, but really throughout the book of Acts. Um, the idea of speaking openly, frankly, and without ambiguity. Before we get back into the reading, um, I'd like to try to at least illustrate by introduction how it's possible to speak openly, to speak frankly, and to not be ambiguous, and to do that in kindness. You imagine if you go to a doctor and you receive some tests, and what they find is you have a rapidly progressing cancer, right? The doctor has to deliver the news to you. Can the doctor deliver that news, which is difficult and very heartbreaking, can they deliver that news in an open and frank and not ambiguous way while still being kind and tender about it, right? Absolutely, right? So again, to speak frankly, to speak openly, to, to not be ambiguous in our language about things or how we're referring to things, that doesn't mean that we need to be brash and unkind. And again, we'll, we'll see that especially in the text. So I'd like to start in verses 1 through 12, where we see Peter speaking boldly. And like Jason said, um, the apostles, Peter and John particularly, are interrupted, it says, as they were speaking to the people in verse 1. So I kind of get the idea that maybe verse 26 of chapter 3 may have not actually been the intended conclusion of the sermon, but maybe that's as far as they got, right? And then as they're speaking, the leadership in Jerusalem um, you imagine this is, you know, 5,000 men now, so this is getting a little out of hand. They come, they take them by force, they take them into jail. So let's read verses 1 through 12 again, 
And we'll talk more about it after rereading the section. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. And I think that's referring to the message of Acts chapter 3. So that sermon that was literally just taught, the people who heard that message believed and the number of the men, so not including women and children, just the men now, came to be about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and, and Annas, the high priest, was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. So time out for a second. Whatever Peter's about to say is something that God not only approves of, but I think we can safely say this is coming directly from God. So Peter's not being unkind. He's not being rash. You know, whatever Peter is about to say is something that God is directing him and empowering him to say. So he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for, the benefit, for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So something to keep in mind here, um, the way that the leadership both responds to Jesus and to Peter here, it can really give you the impression it's like they've never seen anything before that would give them any clue of what's going on. You know, they say, you know, by what power in verse 7 or what name have you done this? This is the same group who saw Jesus' miracles in his lifetime. It's the people who heard his teaching and even got in very direct confrontation with him, especially the last seven days of his life in Jerusalem. These are the people who plotted against Jesus and paid Judas um, to betray Jesus to them. Um, I have some scriptural references written down here, so I'll, I'll follow those references. Um, but in Matthew 27, verse 4, these are the people when, Jesus, when Judas returned back to them to give them the money. You know, he said, I've sold you know, innocent blood. It's, he mentions that Jesus was innocent. And they say, go take care of that yourself. You know, basically implying, like, just go kill yourself. Get it over with. Um, and he does. Same group. Matthew 27, 15 through 20. These are the people who stirred up the crowds to have Jesus crucified. Annas and Caiaphas both had Jesus on trial before them and they had a very direct hand in condemning Jesus. And Jesus was spit on, slapped, blindfolded right in front of them. And so they know Jesus really well. Matthew 27 as well, they mocked Jesus as he was being crucified. They stood there, they watched it happen. They reviled him. They're the ones who said, you know, if he's the son of God, let him come down, come down from the, now from the cross and then we will believe in him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. These are the people, the same group, that set up a guard at Jesus' tomb and said, this deceiver said that in three days he'll rise again and, you know, if his disciples come and steal him away, the, the last deception is going to be even greater than the first. So Pilate says, you know what? You've got a guard. Secure it as well as you can. Well, in Matthew 28, these are the same people, same group now, 
the guards who saw the angel like blast away the rock and open the tomb, trembling, fearful, they ran away, reported it to them what had happened. This is the same group of people that paid those guards money to lie and to circulate a rumor that, well, they just fell asleep. They don't know what happened. You know, the disciples stole them away. And so they heard what happened. They heard the report and they said, here's some money. Here's what you're going to say about this now and not the truth. Same group of people. So the problem now is, though, it's like Jesus just won't go away. So this went from 120 people in chapter 1, verse 15, to 3,000 believers in chapter 2, to now being 5,000 men in chapter 4. So this could be very well over 10,000 believers in Jerusalem in a very short amount of time. So you imagine they can't ignore this problem anymore. Now it demands some kind of forceful investigation. So they take Peter and John, and we find out a little bit later in verse 14, what we haven't read yet, but was read in the scripture reading, the man who is healed was also standing there right there with them, right? So they arrest them, they bring them into custody to question them. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, does what um, I hope just sinks into your mind, something that I've repeated back when we did Acts 1 and 2, something we see people filled with the Holy Spirit do when they talk about Jesus, when they teach about him, they convey God's kingdom, they center that on Jesus, but they convey God's kingdom, they teach about Jesus by communicating and connecting scripture together in personal ways. They personalize it to then convict the heart, the person they're talking to. Over and over, you see that in verse 11. We'll get to this in just a second. But Peter is quoting scripture and he's saying, this is you. You did this. And so Jesus is explaining to them God's kingdom by connecting scripture and putting it on them in a personal way, saying, you can't escape this. This is what happened. This is why you're guilty, and there's salvation in nobody else. Something else interesting about this, um, they've heard this quoted before. I'd like for you to turn here in Matthew 21. I think this is pretty fascinating. But this exact scripture, again, this is the same audience in Matthew 21, same people. Matthew 21, and this is in Jesus' last week alive in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And before his, um, before his teaching that we're going to see in Matthew 21, I want to show you something in verse... Where did, where did we go here? Did I write down the right... Reference, yes, I did. Okay, so it's the reference we're going to look at is verse 42 through 46. But back in verse 24, what we're going to see is the climax of a series of things Jesus was teaching that started with a question in verse 23, rather. Verse 23. Notice when he entered the temple, chief priests, the elders of the people, came to him while he was teaching, just like Peter and John, and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You know, it's ironic. They say that because they see Jesus driving up the money changers in the temple, but also because they've seen Jesus healing the blind and the lame. So Jesus, the way he finishes teaching them in response to this question, by what authority are you doing this? Notice verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from 
Is Jesus being ambiguous here? Is he being mysterious? He's communicating and connecting scripture to convict the heart. He says, it's going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dusts. When the chief priests and the scribes heard his parables, they understood, they understood that he was speaking about them. Turn back to Acts 4. You see how Peter is saying, hey, that thing Jesus said, you know, that's happened now. And that stone that was rejected, you rejected him. And now this house is crumbling down and a new house is being built by God and Jesus is that chief cornerstone now. And so Peter is not letting them escape the fact that they are accountable for what they've done. I love how Peter responds, by the way, initially in verse 9. If we're on trial for a benefit done to a sick man, right? So it's like, okay, if you're investigating us and if we're in trouble because a sick man has been healed, let it be known to you why this has happened. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, that this man has been made well. So I want to point out something again, the idea of being open and frank and not ambiguous. Peter's boldness, I don't think it's just in... It's elicited because of anger or impatience and frustration, which he could be, right? I mean, again, these are the same people in the Gospels. It's the same group that knew Lazarus was risen from the dead, and they plotted to kill Lazarus. They saw Jesus' miracles. They paid people to lie about his resurrection. It's the same group. So imagine Peter could be out of his mind livid and like, what is wrong with you dishonest people? How are you so dense and hard-hearted. But what he does, he presents to them just the truth. And what he does is he, I think in calmness yet passion, really presents a condensed version of the lesson that he gave in chapter 3. It's actually very, very similar. It's a lesson that is triggered because of the healing of the man. He explains that the healing is actually a testimony to Jesus' living in heaven and ruling and empowering his disciples so that Jesus can be preached as risen from the dead. And so it's all just a very condensed version of the things said in Acts 3. And we talked last week about the urge to repent is trying to bring people into restoration. And I think we see that here. In verse 10, he doesn't just leave them with their guilt, that they're guilty for crucifying Jesus. He says, well, God raised him from the dead. And so the reason why they need to be confronted with the problem is because if they don't accept the problem, they're not going to accept the solution. And so them crucifying Jesus, God solved that problem. He's risen from the dead. But they have to accept their position in order to see their place with that promise and accept it. Another thing about Jesus, or rather Peter's boldness here, being rooted in grace, love, and forgiveness So Peter is trying to open the door of the kingdom again for them. But are the leaders being punished? Like, are their lives harder now that Jesus is risen? What we're going to see through Acts is, no, it's actually the disciples are going to be punished. They're going to be threatened here. They're going to be flogged. Stephen's going to be put to death. And so the grace is, they've done this. Well, they're keeping their power, their position. They get to keep all of that that they're going to get to abuse the disciples seemingly without any immediate consequence. 
And so God is graciously offering something to them through an appeal of those who are willing to suffer boldly for the message. One more angle of this. Was Peter always this bold? When Peter was in the presence of this group, when they were condemning Jesus, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. So I think a lot of us, and probably all of us, struggle with boldness. And this lesson for me, just even studying about this, teaching about this is very humiliating um, because there's a big difference, by the way, in like saying something boldly, generally from like preaching point standpoint, but to actually talk with people and to be individually bold is an entirely other thing, right? And so Peter wasn't just generally bold in like sermons to the crowds. I mean, he would really say what needed to be said to people on a personal level, right? Anyway, I say all that to say that I see that boldness is something that I really, really struggle with. But what gives me hope is Peter's boldness was a result of God's patience with him. It was a result of the fact that he understood his need for forgiveness. He was able to reflect on his failures. And so it's not just that Peter is offering grace through the message spoken boldly, but he's able to be bold because he understands himself how much mercy he's needed to teach these things himself. So don't feel hopeless or dismissive about all this just because it's like, ah, you know, I'm no Peter and how could I ever do this? You know, I mean, look at where Peter came from, right? So all of this is rooted in the fact that Jesus is forgiving and gracious and powerful to transform us. Let's look at 13 through 22 and just see further how they continue in this boldness and these interactions. So verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And verse 21, When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So I think another aspect of Peter's boldness here is they perceived because of their own interactions with Jesus. Again, these people were very familiar with Jesus. And again, it's like they just could not escape Jesus. It's just he won't go away. And so they see Jesus in them. And I think an important aspect of this in verse 13, a lesson that's really critical. This boldness doesn't come from a personality type. This isn't a type A personality thing, right? This isn't because of a person's intelligence, right? They're just, they're so smart, they can outwit them, right? And it's not because they've been to religious school, right? Um, When people find out I'm a preacher, they're like, oh, did you go to seminary? And when I say no, they're like, oh, are you going to go to seminary? It's like, no, I don't, yeah, that's just, that's not what you see in the Bible. Anyway, um, it's not because of their education. It's not because they went to a great school, even besides some religious school, 
It's not because they were confident in their economic status and so they were able to speak boldly because of the security of their family or their position. None of those things. Their boldness came from spending time with Jesus. And they had done that very personally. They had also done that very patiently. And they had done it very sacrificially. Something I've mentioned before that um, this can sound bad maybe, but leisure and comfort can very easily become the enemy of rooted faith. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is it's through conflict, it is through difficulty, it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, as a wise man once said. And so boldness, the closer we are with Jesus, the more bold we become. This isn't just something for a preacher or elders. And some of the most evangelistic people I've ever met aren't preachers. They're not elders of congregations. They're just ordinary people who are filled with Christ and the Spirit. And they just, anywhere they go, whether it's their work or anywhere, they're trying to initiate conversations about Jesus and have Bible studies with people, literally at any opportunity they have. And again, some of those people who are the most evangelistic people I've ever met, they're not preachers, they're not evangelists, they're not elders. They're simply filled with the Spirit of God. Now, how did Peter and John respond to being threatened? You know, these are intimidating people. They crucified Jesus, and Peter and John know that. And their threats, by the way, I don't think they're just saying, stop, stop, stop. I think what they're set, what, what's happening is they're setting up a legal basis to punish them in the future, which we see in Acts 5. They get flogged. So like they're saying, if you continue in this, here's what we're going to do. And yes, it, it does happen. So these threats, I don't think, are just empty threats. They have authority, and they're promising to use that authority to punish them if they disobey their order, right? But how did they respond? And I think this is brilliant. They end up repeating this as a statement instead of a question in chapter 5 when they're put in jail again. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. You know, what's interesting is they've taken Peter into custody, but who's really on trial here, right? So earlier, Peter confronted them that, no, you're the ones actually who are under investigation. And then when they're threatening them here, Peter's saying, you need to decide something for yourself. Is it right for us to obey you or God, right? And so imagine if they thought through that, how helpful that would be. What I love about this is it shows that they took Jesus' words in Matthew 28, they took those personally, and it became practical. And I think that's what faith does with God's promises, is God promises things that are intangible, that don't have any like immediate application of like, tomorrow do this, or in five minutes do this with your life. What genuine faith does is it takes God's promises and it finds ways of making them practical because they're carried and tangibly carried in the heart. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Was that real to Peter and to John? Was it real? You know, they're being threatened by the authorities and what Peter is saying basically is, your authority doesn't go that far. And our accountability is ultimately not to you, but to God himself. This is, in a sense, they're in good trouble, is what I've heard it, heard it referred to. And so we have to think, in terms of boldness, who gets to determine the terms of our obedience to God? Who gets to determine that? 
Because the way that this sometimes played out in the Old Testament is they would have been quiet here because they're the Jewish authorities. They have the power. You know, see, imagine what very well could have happened if they weren't so bold and full of faith is, okay, you know, we'll go into hiding. We'll be more quiet, more secretive about this. Who determines the terms of our obedience? Who do we allow to determine that? And this is something that has really convicted me with things thinking personally about our work, other areas of life besides just saying things willfully. Do our employers, do we allow them to determine the terms of our obedience to God? Does our family get to determine the terms of our obedience to God? How about our friends? The disciples, the way they viewed it, if God has determined something in his authority, then there is no authority that has the right to change that for them. And so it wouldn't be right then for them or for us to be intimidated when God has spoken on a matter for us to act and for us to be silenced or stopped to act. And so Christ-like boldness is not silenced by inconvenience or a lack of established relationship. You know, and that's kind of the hard thing about boldness is, you know... Nobody can ultimately, I think, see enough to really keep me accountable to growing in boldness. There's no relationship really close enough. So like even Eva, all the time that we spend together, ultimately she's not going to see as clearly as God can or as I can within myself if I'm at a study with someone and I'm very well aware that I wasn't saying what I knew needed to be said or asking what needed to be asked in order to really get to the heart of the need of the conversation, right? And so Christ-like boldness isn't silenced by inconvenience, difficulty, and not by established relationships either. So what I mean by that, I think there's things that are easy to buy into in terms of like ideologies in our world because they make God's work much easier and convenient for us. These statements I'm about to say are not necessarily inherently bad, we just need to be really careful with them. Have you ever heard it said, people don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care? I've heard that a lot. Now, it's not, again, that's not inherently bad. Or how about, you can't really speak the truth to someone until you establish a relationship first. That's something that I heard growing up a lot is, you've got to establish a relationship, you've got to earn the right to speak the truth to someone. Again, not inherently bad, right? We need to be friendly with people and developing friendships with people in the world, great. But do you know what that can end up doing to us? Is I'm trying to minimize every possible difficulty with evangelism. I'm trying to make it as easy as possible. I'm going to make sure that there's as little chance as possible that I'm going to be disliked or lose a relationship. And so I'm trying to minimize every possible difficult factor in evangelism and maximize the comfort and the ease of the work. That's just not what we find here, right? Christ-like boldness isn't ambiguous. It's not concealed. And I recognize that this is extremely challenging to figure out how to apply this and be kind, develop relationships. But I think we need to understand the biblical example and be more inspired by these examples to help balance out things that the world says that really aren't what the Bible teaches. And I think we have to be very careful 
with worldly anthems that again, in very hidden ways, can contradict the ideas we find in scripture. So boldness doesn't need an established relationship. Were the apostles friends with these guys? Had Peter and John developed the right by friendship to talk to the religious leaders? No, they were their enemies. Again, they spoke at every opportunity. All right, 23 through 31. So this part is, to me, maybe the most shocking. Let's, let's go ahead and read this. So this is now, they're released, and they go back to their brethren. Verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the earth and the, or the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, his, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's Psalm 2, by the way. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets or the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, I think verse 31 is shocking. They <laughs> began to speak the word of God with boldness. It's like, wasn't that what they were already doing? But man, I think there's so many things that God says that because it is so obviously inconvenient, when we separate ourselves from seeing its beauty and trying to surrender to it, the extent that godly instruction can go, the subtlety of application, how much maturity can be applied to it, is all lost. They had began to be bold before, and how that boldness can now grow through conflict and it deepening their faith and their trust in God, they really are just beginning, right? And so it is amazing, but it is still, it is a beginning because of their willingness. Now, I think it's worth noting, instead of protesting or praying for relief. They pray for more boldness. The thing that brought on trouble and it guarantees a harder life. So you imagine like, what would we do, right? We, we get in trouble with the police or something in Savannah, you know, who knows? And, you know, we come together and say, we need to start a protest. You know, this is ridiculous. We have rights and freedoms and constitution and that's not what they do. And they don't pray, God, please stop this persecution. We want our freedom back. We want our freedom to practice our faith without any persecution. That's not what they do. They say, God, you are in control. You are the highest authority. And when they quote Psalm 2, I think it's incredible when they quote Psalm 2 because that both gives them courage, comfort, and perspective. You know, the way that they spoke to God was saturated with scripture for a reason. They're getting comfort, courage, and perspective to continue, to continue to be willing to suffer for the Lord's will. And so with Psalm 2, they recognize that God is master, but that the world is in hostility against him. And it's always been that way. So verse 25, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile thing? 
And they say, verse 27, it's the same thing that's happened. And so the world is hostile against God. That's how it's always been. It's how it will always be. And so if the world is in direct, aggressive hostility against God, and I'm tempted, you know what? I just want to be more friendly with the world. I, I don't want as much discomfort. I think this encourages them to know if they're, because of the truth, struggling in the world, the world, they're enemies of God. And so this draws them closer to God in the end. And then think about it. What did, G, what did God accomplish through Jesus' bodily suffering, his boldness in the face of this opposition? Jesus stood his ground in love and in faith. What did God accomplish? Redemption. So think about it. If they back down now, then God's purpose, their place within that purpose, God's hand in extending his hand through them is going to be damaged. So for them to reflect on Jesus and what God accomplished through Jesus, it emboldens them. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how I just need to be thinking much more personally about the cross. Um, I think the cross was just so much more a part of the heartbeat of the Christians in the book of Acts and in the epistles. The cross defined their identity, defined their desires, their values. Their cross emboldened them and completely defined their relationship to the world. And it's the cross that emboldened them to continue to be willing to suffer in doing God's will. And I think what this helps us see is we need to be striving to pray more kingdom-focused prayers. And I want to bring up a couple of examples of that. I think one is the Lord's Prayer. I think this is this prayer and the intention behind it. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus meant when he modeled the prayer for us and for them. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. You know what they were ultimately praying for here? God, your kingdom come. Don't let these men make us cowardly in the face of this opposition. Let your kingdom be what motivates us. Let your kingdom be preached boldly. They were being tempted now to conceal the message and their prayer, I think, shows there may have been some fear that they were tempted to have, but as a community of believers, they were facing that fear and remembering that it's ultimately God's kingdom that they're living for and they were seeking for his will to be done. And so I think a question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to pray for things that require self-sacrifice? We'll see this in James in a second, but, you know, there's a common, like, you know, again, common saying with, if you pray for patience, what's going to happen? Probably going to have a trial, right? What that can do is that can make you think, like, well, I better stop praying for patience then, right? Is it worth that little? Is suffering a worthy price to pay to be closer with God? If suffering is the price for becoming more patient in, in Christ and having endurance, why aren't we willing to pay that price? If more persecution is the cost for greater boldness, why wouldn't they be willing to pay that price? You know, so we don't just need to be praying for physical things, you know, restore me, help me through my health, finances. Again, we need to bring everything to God. But I think spirit-based prayer are those things that are of God's will, even when it's not our will. 
It's praying for things that, if I'm really going to seek this, if this is really what I'm going to be looking for, then I've got to be willing to pay the price. And what that tests is what I really deem valuable. So I want to end the lesson looking at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And I want to put forward some applications from James related to all of this. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James 1, verses 2 through 8. So he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I want to start with verse 6, asking in faith without any doubting. And I'd like to suggest that this is ultimately what we value. So I pray for patience. I pray for boldness. Things get hard. What do I do? Do I still want it? Or do I give up on it? An illustration I've used, I think, many times. So you've heard me say this before, but when I was like 12, I would tell my dad, I want a guitar, I want a guitar, I want a guitar, I want a guitar. Well, he got me a guitar. Well, I was really lazy. And so the guitar collected dust, and my dad would play it sometimes because he enjoyed guitar when he was younger. But, you know, I tried to play it for a little bit, was too lazy to apply myself, never learned, wish I could go back, wish I could have applied myself. I liked the idea of a guitar. I enjoyed music that had electric guitar, right? But when it came down to the reality of, okay, here it is, what are you going to do with it? Nothing. I liked the idea, but I didn't actually value it enough to use it. We may like the idea of faith, patience, boldness. It might be fun to read about in the book of Acts. But what it means to pray in faith without any doubting is God's going to look at us and say, okay, you're asking for patience, and I'm willing to give it to you. I'm not holding it back. But if you begin to suffer without joy in verse 2, then what can God give you? Because as soon as you pay the price to gain the thing you've asked for, well, now you don't want it anymore. And how can God work with us if that's the case? And so it's not that I need to have perfect faith, like have flawless faith in who God is and his will. The idea of asking faith without any doubting is having the patience to continue to seek even when it's hard. We need to have the patience to seek wisdom from God with boldness, even when it's hard. I know we're not the Apostle Peter or John, so it takes wisdom. How do we filter these examples and the extremity of these examples? Because we're not apostles. You know, we, a lot of us have full-time jobs, and so this, it's going to look maybe a little bit different than what we see with John and Peter. How do we filter these examples and think about them more practically and personally? I think the first application of wisdom, just like what they did in Acts chapter 4, we need to pray consistently about it. Consistently. You know, it's not that God is trying to withhold boldness from us, but it's something that we need to be seeking and praying for. If we seek, we will find. And I think community. They didn't just pray individually and go their separate ways. They, they came together and recognized, hey, 
we need to not let this disturb us. We need to be seeking more boldness from God. And so I think community prayer, talking about weaknesses and boldness mutually is very encouraging. And I think we need to be thinking about Luke 16, where Jesus said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. So I think with boldness, it can be easy to focus on hypotheticals. What are we going to do if, you know, the government says, preach about homosexuality being a sin and you go to jail? What are we going to do? And I think those hypotheticals can actually cause us to maybe be self-righteous because of like, oh, here's what I would do. I don't know. I think we need to think more little. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful in much. You know how you can make sure you'll be more bold in that hypothetical time? Is by being more bold right now. Bringing Jesus into conversations, trying to ask spiritually focused questions. You know, I think again, we read God's word and we think because I'm not on that level, I won't even try. Or because I don't do what Peter and John did, well, God hates me as soon as I don't do exactly the same thing. And all of that is a lack of patience. We need to be more patient, have more endurance, and be more thankful for the littleness of our applications, as little as that may be, as much as it might cause us to struggle with insecurities and guilt, we need to be more anchored like Peter was in grace and the love of God. And that's ultimately what will compel us to make those smaller applications. Last application with prayer and conversation. Something that has really helped me, I think we all interact with certain people very consistently. Pray for God to help you with that person. If I were to ask right now, like, hey, is there somebody that you've been wanting to have maybe a more heartfelt, clear conversation with, and you just, every time you talk to that person, you're like, oh, I didn't do it again. I, that's me, like, literally every Bible study. Um, pray about that person. Just pray, like, God, please help me to be more willing to say the thing that needs to be said. Please help me to make more of this opportunity. And you'll see. If you're serious about that, and if that's what you're really praying for, God will help you. And he'll help that interaction be more meaningful. And so I leave that with you. The power of the gospel makes us bold. And we need to see what's happening in the book of Acts and just admire it and be inspired by it. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the gospel message this morning, there's, there's no better time than among God's people when the word of God has been preached. And so if there's anything we can do for you or any need that you have, uh, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.